This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Leon Logan-Nathan and with me, my co-host, Peter Gowers. Hello there. How are you, my friend? I'm well, I'm well. It's a little bit warm here, but uh, we're doing okay. You'll survive the heat, the beautiful warmth. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Look, uh, I, I think there's a few things I do want to discuss, but I think I'm going to save that to tomorrow uh, with uh, with Walshy because uh, I don't want to spoil the party. But there's, uh, <laughs> there's a few things on my mind. A few things have got you goat. Yes, yes, no problems. Um, so, uh, look, mate, we think we might just press on today and get straight into our conversation with um, our special guest. Um, this lady was introduced to me by Anka Nagel. Anka is one of our migration agents here at Ward Keller uh, who lives in Alice Springs. And Anka reached out to me and said, you've got to get Tanya Heaslip on your podcast. She's really interesting. So I said, okay. Uh, and so with that, Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Leon. Thank you, Peter. Welcome, Tanya. Uh, we will have some fun and don't be too scared, okay? We're very kind to people. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, Taya, you are based in Alice Springs as well, are you? Yes, I am. Right. And what what do you do there right now? What you, what's your position there? Well, it's an interesting position. I came back here three years ago after 20 years in the West working in mining uh, law over there. Uh, came back to Alice because my father was dying. So in the three years uh, I've been back here, I've taken on a different role, um, in-house commercial work, and I've written and published two books, which was something that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And so coming back uh, and spending time with my father before he died was very important because the books, especially the second one, uh, it revolved around him a great deal. Did you grow up in Alice, Tanya? I did. I came here when I was four. Um, my parents were originally from the Flinders Ranges in South Australia, which uh, I don't know if you know, but it's a very beautiful um, area of the Mid-North, uh, but it's very conservative. And when they were growing up there in the 50s, they both wanted to escape, they wanted change and adventure. And so they came to Alice in the early 60s in the middle of a drought, but dad was from the land. He was from a sheep station in the Flinders. And so they bought a block here in the middle of the drought because it was the smallest block available and it was the only one they could afford and it had almost no stock on it. But they took a plunge and came here with, at the time I was four and my sister was three and my brother was one. So that was a, a brave and bold move in retrospect in the 60s, mid-60s. Mm. And so from the age of four you grew up in Alice Springs? Yeah, grew up on a cattle station north of Alice in this amazing country. Right. And uh, how did you go to school? Was it School of the Air? Yes. So my entire primary years were Correspondence School and School of the Air. And I'm not sure if you know how the two coexist or at least coexisted in the 60s and early 70s, uh, but 
the correspondence school was based in Adelaide and they would send out sets of work every 14 days. So you would receive a pack of work that for 14 days you would follow and we had a little schoolroom and a governess to oversee the work. Um, and we'd begin at 7.30 in the morning and finish at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and in the middle of each day, for half an hour, we had School of the Air, which was based in Alice Springs. So it was this very interesting juxtaposition of written work with a teacher we never, ever met, never spoke to, never saw, uh, but loved dearly because for the seven years of my primary school, she was my long-distance teacher and marked my work and sent it back with gold stars and lovely things like that <laughs> most of the time. Uh, and then this fabulous, exciting School of the Air um, scenario where for half an hour we could hear the voice of a teacher and we could hear the voice of other students. And so even though we didn't know what their faces looked like, we could, with our imagination, put um, faces around the words and um, from. And then, of course, in, in due course, we got to meet those teachers and students through what they called School of the Air get-togethers. But those seven years were that very interesting juxtaposition of mostly written work and then half an hour of fun. It was like live theatre. It was just so much fun. And so after finishing uh, primary school, did you have to go away for high school? Yes, back then. So this was 1975. I went away at age 12. Oh, my goodness, so young. Um, but back then the, the Territory Government paid bush people a subsidy to send their kids away to boarding school because there was no equivalent here in the centre, at least. Um, and so I went a 1,000 miles south to Adelaide, which compared to Alice was incredibly cold and full of concrete and um, a very lonely and miserable place, um, five years inside what we called a prison. Uh, it was a very Victorian-style boarding school of girls only. And for a bush kid who'd just grown up wild and um, working out of the stock camp, to actually then be in a uniform inside an all-girls boarding school was, um, was like going on. to another planet. With shoes on, exactly. <laughs> With shoes on, Peter. It was yeah. like going to another planet. Yeah. What, what school was that, Tanya? Well, it um, at the time was known affectionately as Men's Last Chance, which was <laughs> <laughs> short for Methodist yeah, Ladies College. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We had right. one of them too. Yeah, they do, they do in Melbourne and, and yeah. in Perth. Yeah. Um, then over time, or around the time that I got there, the name changed to Annesley College. But, it, yes, it was um, Men's Last Chance. That's what it was referred to as. <laughs> Very unkind. Very and unkind indeed. Did that, uh, how did you, I mean, okay, it wasn't great from a, from a home perspective, but from an education perspective, how did you uh, find the school? Did it change you in any way? Yes, look, um, the school did what it was actually meant to do and that was to give me an opportunity that I would never, ever have got had I stayed on the cattle station. I would have grown up and married the boy next door and the joke was you would then breed his stock camp. So that's, <laughs> you know, why did they breed stock camps? Um, yeah. And I was very, very fortunate because I was a bookish kind of child and... I, I was never going to want to marry the boy next door 
anyway. So the future on the land wasn't looking too flash for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the education there was um, excellent. So it, it gave me the chance then to go to law school, which um, was, was, you know, an extraordinary opportunity for a kid from the bush. I was the first School of the Year student to go to law school and the first School of the Year student to graduate from law. And that was purely because, you know, I had a, a very, very good secondary education. So you know, I was incredibly lucky and privileged. I didn't realise that at the time. And it took a long time to even be able to visit Adelaide and look at the school when I was no longer mm. there because it had the boarding side was so tough, but the, the school side was fabulous. Is it possible or was it possible um, to do all of your schooling? I know you went away, but was it actually possible to do it on School of the Air to Year 12 or does it finish at a certain age? No. When when I was doing it, which was um, to the end of 1974, there were no further options. I think okay. in some states you could perhaps do correspondence school um, in, in your senior years, but that wasn't available to us and no school of the year then, and, and I think still does, only go to grade seven or what was our, yeah. you know, grade seven. So, yeah. no, there were no other real opportunities. Mm. Mm-hmm. What a, what a um, I guess, uh, a great opportunity that the NT government assisted with to, uh, as you say, yeah. although the boarding side of things was difficult, but the education side of things would have been, uh, well, life-changing really. Yeah, you're right, Peter. Life-changing is a very good description because uh, had I not had those opportunities and had fantastic teachers who taught me to think and to look beyond my world, I, I, I would I would have, you know, to be honest, I don't know what I would have done, but um, this, this gave me opportunities. And, in fact, I loved history. That was my favourite subject and I really mm. wanted to become a journalist and I had these grand ideas of becoming a foreign correspondent and travelling the world and that was my plan. Um, but the teachers p- talked me out of it and I, I didn't have the, the courage of my convictions but that back then journalism was a cadetship and mm. law was a degree and they said, no, 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 you, you'll get the marks for law so you should do law. I didn't even know what law was. I had no <laughs> idea. Dear, uh-huh. and I just sort of ended up signing a form. I didn't know what it was meant to do, and I, you know, deeply regretted I didn't have the courage to say, but I, I really want to stick with being a journalist and putting <laughs> my application. But uh-huh. they actually allowed me that they controlled the the, the teachers um, what our process was, so they allowed me to put in an application for both. Um, but the deal was whatever the higher of the marks. Mm. Were, that's that's what you do. So that's what happened. Mm. So you went to law school in Adelaide or somewhere else? Yes. Adelaide, yes. right? In okay. Adelaide, yeah. And so but you finished in between, in, in between, because I was so homesick. I, I I deferred law, and it was back when people didn't really defer topics; they'd just been um, admitted to, and I came back for a gap year. But before there were such things as gap years, but mm. I was so homesick for the centre and for the land, the bush. So I came home and did a year and worked on the cattle station. Um, but then my mother said, no, you have to go back. Your future is is back there. So then I went back and did five years in Adelaide. There's and two then, things. 
Oh, so I was just going to say quickly, Leon, there's two things about that, um, Tanya. One is that uh, I've always wondered where the concept of the gap year came from. You may well have invented it. <laughs> uh, and, and I did. You'd be the first person I know who's actually done a gap year who then went back to study. You know the gap year is lifelong. <laughs> well, there was certainly nobody else doing it and the school was shocked and I had to write lots of persuasive letters to the university to allow me to defer and yeah. everybody I knew was shocked. But the one thing I was clear about was I was so homesick um, mm. for this, for home, so that, that, way I overrode everyone's objections. <laughs> <laughs> Did your siblings uh, follow in your footsteps, Tanya? Uh, no, um, not at all. Um, I was the first, not only the first world year student to go to law school and graduate, but the first person in my family to go to university. And my, my family were people from the land and nobody had ever been to university. Um, and my sister, Melissa, and my two brothers, Brett and Ben, both younger than me, they were all mad about the land and that's the only place they wanted to be with the cattle and the horses. So, no, I was the, the, the weirdo, the odd <laughs> one out, no doubt about it. You know, that, there's no place really on a station for sort of a weirdo bookish girl. <laughs> and they're still there now on the left? Uh, my brothers are. My sister would have loved to have done it, but back then the um, inheritance laws of the land meant that girls didn't get that opportunity, which was a huge blow for my sister as mm. she would have been brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and she said to me the other day that she spent most of her 20s dealing with her rage and coming to terms with the fact that as a girl she wasn't allowed that opportunity. But she went on to do different things and um, ran this very interesting um, sign writing business with her artist husband and then later in in later years so courageous and gutsy just 10 years or so ago she actually decided right it is my turn um, to to get qualifications she'd always loved children and so she she did um, a Bachelor of Education online um, while working as a mature, very mature age student. You know, she was in her 50s and, and now she um, she's a kindy teacher as well uh -huh. as her husband run the business. So uh, that's fair, such determination on her part. She sort of overcame mm. that, that group. But she's lived in Alice all the time. She didn't leave. Mm. That was mm. the that was great the story. And so you uh, finished your law degree and then what did you do next? Well, then I was, I was still desperate to get back to the Territory because that was five long years. It was four <laughs> years for the degree and a year for um, the graduate diploma. So I applied, um, I applied, in fact, during my graduate diploma year um, for a stint as an associate in Darwin um, with the Supreme Court um, because we had a, a month that we had to do work experience. And the South Australian graduate diploma, the, um, the, the institute said, no, 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 you can't possibly do that, not in a different jurisdiction. I said, I'm going to that jurisdiction to work. Mark my words. So they let me <laughs> come up eventually. I must have been desperate. I think, I again, I wrote affidavit after affidavit yeah. pleading my case. Um, and so I did a month 
in Darwin, which was just a hoot. And um, I was Justice Nader's um, second yeah. associate because he already had an associate. And we just had so much fun. So then I came back and um, applied for roles and I applied to Crown Prosecutions as it was then, um, now the DPP. And um, I also, mm -hmm. and, and they invited me to come up for an interview and I also received an interview with Blake Dawson in Brisbane. So I went via Brisbane on the way to Darwin mm. and thought, oh, no, this is far too um, constrained, I think was the, the word. And then I got to Darwin, I was like, yes, yes, I'm back <laughs> from the Territory and uh, this, and it was just like coming home. And so I, I grabbed the job there and, it, you know, it was wonderful. It was life-changing. But Darwin's quite different to Alice in terms of climate at least. Um, yeah. But you say you still felt at home in Darwin. So what um, What was, I mean, how, how did that work? Because it's the territory. <laughs> I don't know if it's so extreme a difference now. I'm not sure because I've lived in so many places now. It's all very blurred. But back then, this was um, like 1986. And bear in mind, people didn't travel very much. We didn't have any mm. social media when you when you arrived in the territory, you were in a different world. Whether it was Alice or Darwin, it was a different approach to life. And even though the two places geographically are very different, um, the topography is so different, the businesses are so different. There's still that territory attitude. And um, I knew that I was going to come back to Alice and practice. That was my long-term plan, but I had to get some experience first. So Darwin was the, um, you know, stopping off point. And uh, that that territory, coming out of conservative South Australia, oh, my God, it was just like <laughs> it was coming home in every way, mm. even though it wasn't Alice. And I knew I could get from Darwin to Alice for holidays so much more easily. Mm. Pardon my ignorance, but... Um, what exactly does an associate of a Supreme Court justice do on a daily basis? <laughs> well, I didn't do very much. It has to be said. Um, I had a lot of fun following the, the associate around. So he he prepares um, the courtroom for the judge on the day. He he provides all. He, well, they were they were both guys, the associates at the time. Um, he prepares the cases that will be needed, all the documents the judge will need. Then he goes into court and sits. Um, near the judge and assist him and provides whatever's needed and then afterwards runs around and does research and provides that. Sometimes if the associates really experience, they'll often do drafts, first drafts of judgments. So mm. basically they are the eyes and the ears and the researchers for the judges. So when I was there, the guy um, who was the associate was super smart out of Sydney, absolutely gorgeous guy. And so I just I just followed him and had a good time. We went out to lunch and we went to all these, you know, barbecues at night and I just partied for, mm. you know, the whole month and thought I'm coming back here in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> and so working uh, at the DPP, uh, who, who were your colleagues back then, just out of interest? So it's Crown Prosecution, yeah. uh, Crown Prosecutions as it was. So Jack Kowalski was um, there at the time. There are also some serious characters like Ray Minahan. I don't oh, know yes, if yes. you ever knew Ray. Yes. Um, and Roy, Roy, I can't remember Roy's surname. Um, but they they were all in charge. 
Um, and so Jack was assigned to look after me because I, you know, I, I was completely clueless, of course. Even though we'd done a year of graduate diploma, that you know, doesn't set you up even remotely um, for anything uh, practical, especially court work. Um, so I was having this lovely time going down, following Jack and learning and preparing, getting all excited. Soon I was going to run a few little cases. And then the most extraordinary thing happened three months in. And this, again, was completely life-changing. Um, uh, a tourist, I think it was, a, it was either a German or a British tourist, fell off Ayers Rock, off Uluru, and died. And so it was a tragedy. And as the police were there with the body, they found the matinee jacket that Lindy Chamberlain wow. said had always been worn by Azaria. Wow. So it was like divine intervention. They had to let Lindy out of jail immediately. And then there was enormous pressure and the Territory had to fund an inquiry into the Chamberlain convictions. And so, of course, the Crown, which had successfully prosecuted the Chamberlains um, at first instance and then on appeal and then to the High Court, mm. uh, all of a sudden was on the back foot having to defend their convictions. Uh, and the... Uh, and there'd been a team who'd done all that work and, and the Crown team had stuck there. Ian Barker was the lead counsel. Nico Lachlan was the um, solicitor, um, instructing solicitor out of Alice. And they'd done all this from the coronial inquest upwards. And Nico Lachlan said, I am not doing this. I've had enough. I've, I've, you know, I've spent the last seven years or whatever it is on this case. They said, you've got to. You're the only solicitor with all the corporate knowledge he said well i'll do it if you get me a junior so they mm. cast their eyes around <laughs> and thought who's the most hapless um <laughs> junior that we can think of who has ties to nothing and no one and da da um so i was called up to brian martin's office and there have been a number of brian martins in the territory this was the first and he was actually a former solicitor out of Alice Springs and he'd been my parents' solicitor and so he knew the family well. But, of course, he was a big and very scary man. Then he was the solicitor general. And he called me into his enormous office and I stood there and I was very, very nervous because I didn't know what it was about. He said, no, this is the job I want you to take on. This is going to be wonderful for your career, <coughs> etc." And I said to him, and I still can't believe I did it, I said, Thank you very much, Mr. Martin. That, that's that's very kind of you. But I really want to learn to become a crown prosecutor and and go on tour um, to all the islands and um, to do remote community work and and blah blah. And he just looked at me and he folded his arms. He said, "Young lady, if you don't take this opportunity up, I'll be talking to your parents." <laughs> <laughs> uh. And he made a few other veiled threats. I said, "Right, yes, sir." <laughs> So that's, that's then what happened. I ended up for the next 18 months as the junior instructing solicitor on the Chamberlain Inquiry. And we had the most phenomenal team. Um, Johnny Lawrence, who's, um, you know, been a criminal barrister in Darwin now forever, had just arrived in Darwin from Scotland. He was doing his articles. So he juniored me uh, and we um, just had this absolutely extraordinary time. But it you know, it was from a Crown's perspective, we were getting smashed and we were completely uh, annihilated. You know, Lindy, the, the evidence was flawed. She should never have been convicted. 
you know, there was, um, it, it seemed very clear that the jury did not believe her and so she was convicted at the time by the first trial by media and because mm. people didn't think she acted in a, in the in the way that would be expected. What did they say? Her her behaviour was not consistent with that of a grieving mother. Yeah, and it was because she she wasn't sort of normal or didn't play to the usual expected norms mm. uh, that she was she was pursued to an inch of her life and should never have been convicted. So I I worked twenty four seven for the eighteen months to come to that inglorious conclusion. I was only talking about this yesterday. Hey. I, I, I was doing that terrible impersonation that that American actor did uh, when she was playing Lindy Chamberlain. Meryl yeah. Streep. Meryl yeah. Streep. And she, yeah, she was. I won't do it because we've all heard it a million times. But yeah, I, I know the line. Terrible impersonation <laughs> with the dingo and the baby. Yeah. And my wife said to me, "Can you please stop saying that? Like it's really annoying." And then I then I got thinking about it, and Michael Chamberlain died, didn't he? Mm, yeah, and I, I actually said this. I said, how did it all come to be that she got let out eventually? So you just answered the go. question for me. <laughs> so so this, this matinee jacket that she claimed mm. was on the baby Azaria at the time and then mm. went missing mm. was found as a result of some yes. random guy falling off the rock years later. Correct, correct. Wow. So that is like that is just such good and bad luck at the same time for both parties. Yeah, absolutely. That guy died for Lindy, you know, in a, wow. in a way. And they were very, very devout. Yes, they months. were. And I think that was part of the other issue, wasn't yeah. it? People didn't like their religion, whatever that oh. was. Seventh-day uh, Adventists or... Yeah, I think, you know, I should remember, of course. I think it was Seventh-day Adventists. Mm. But um, people, she, Lindy and Michael had churches of people praying for them mm. over those years. And so there was definitely a view that this was divine intervention. Wow. But whatever it was, they had to let Lindy out. And I'll never forget it because we'd all lived through the Lindy Chamberlain yeah. um, story right from the word go because for me particularly, I came from Alice Springs from a yeah, cattle station full of dingoes. Yeah. We knew what dingoes were capable of doing. They they would take calves. They'd take anything. You know, dingoes, dingoes are savage. Mm -hmm. And I, I, at the time, all the bush people thought, well, of course a dingo did it. That's what mm -hmm. dingoes do. And then bit by bit, the case became stranger and you know, fiction was stranger than fact. And she was definitely subject to a trial by media with all the haters um, running stories. So... Um, that, uh, but Dennis Barrett, who was the coroner, he got it right. He said, no, it's a dingo, um, but he was overturned and um, she was so wrongly pursued. Um, but, it, she, you know, she got her day eventually and um, mm. whether it was divine intervention or not, the dear old tourist who fell off she, you know, his, li his life, he didn't lose his life in vain. No, absolutely. That's what a, an that's amazing a, yeah. experience uh, for, for a young lawyer. I mean, oh, it's just incredible. Yeah. Well, that's what Brian Martin said to me afterwards. You know, he said, you know, if I'd let you, he said this to me when I was older and wiser, <laughs> he said, if I'd let you just 
keep on doing what you were doing rather than taking this opportunity, you in later years would have deeply regretted it. And he was right because we travelled and worked with the cream of Australia's silks. You know, I was this young junior thrust into day in, day out. Our QC was Ian Barker, who was one of the greatest silks of Australia. Um, he'd also lived and practised in, in Alice and then Darwin, so he was completely connected to the Territory. But there were the most amazing other silks and then there were the journalists. So mm. we travelled with all the journalists. It, it was extraordinary. We, you know, we were embedded with them or they with us. I don't know actually which way it was. <laughs> and then... There were the camps, you know, there was the pro-Lindy camp and the anti-Lindy camp, yeah. the journalists, and they all stuck together. And the whole thing was this, you know, mosh pit of human um, drinking and um, sort of people sort of living on the edge because everyone was living away from home and following this bizarre case which people felt very passionately about one way or another. And I was just this young thing with my eyes constantly <laughs> popping out of my yeah, head. I bet. Um, it was just the most amazing experience. And what it did was actually ruined me for legal practice for the rest of my life. Because after that, um, ordinary legal practice in an office seemed so boring. And yeah, I, so I, I ended up doing all sorts of different forms of legal practice but um in in the end I, I just kept gravitating back to that kind of work because it was you know there's a big adrenaline rush moving with a pack of the greatest minds in Australia mm. as one and um you know, just being part of it and you've been chasing that high ever since <laughs> yeah yeah it really did yeah. ruin me for day-to-day -day legal practice <laughs> 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 and so what did you do after that? Uh, I mean, you obviously went back to day-to-day -day work, but so you didn't practice as a lawyer um, with the, with the uh, Crown Prosecutor for the rest of your life, though. No. So when that was almost over, I said, I have to go back to Alice Springs. That was always my goal. I want to go back and practice here. And there was a, there was a three-month um, opportunity coming up in the Alice Springs Crown Prosecution Office, and of course, that's where Mick O'Loughlin was based, who, who was the instructing solicitor. And so, again, I wangled my way down there for three months. I said, if you don't let me do it, I will resign. And I meant it because I was just burnt out and living in a suitcase or out of a suitcase for 18 months on the road it was exciting, but I, I, I was really burnt out. And so, they said, yep, you can go in there. And so it extended to six, nearly nine months. And it was fantastic. So I was practising in Alice with the Crown, wonderful group of people in a little old house um, that was once an original courthouse. And I, I loved it. Um, but that role came to an end and then I had to make a decision. And so I was back in Darwin trying to work out I had to go back there and um, David Farquhar from Hovies, which became Cridlands, uh, and David, um, uh, sorry, Richard Giles, they were both partners at Povies then, they um, came to me and said, look, we've got a position coming up here at Povies. We want a young um, civil lawyer who can 
who, who's prepared to learn but also has some criminal experience. So I ended up there at Povis in Darwin, um, which, again, was totally fabulous because I had this wonderful group of people. Um, then a whole raft of other things happened. So, um, in fact, I, I ended up then in Europe the next year and then mm -hmm. came back and practised in Alice. Gee. How did you end up in Europe? Were you on the run from the law or something? <laughs> well, this might seem very strange, but growing up in isolation on a cattle station, you don't have anything to fetter your imagination. So I, I, I was, you know, bookish anyway, and the school of the year had a library and they would send out with mum, who went to town every month to get supplies, a big box of library books. And back then, I think the library was very poor and they must have just got books donated. Anyhow, they were almost all Enid Blyton. <laughs> so I had this incredible diet of um, the magic faraway tree and the secret seven and the famous five while I was living in isolation on a cattle station. So in my mind, I blended the two worlds and I wrote all these stories as a, as a child constantly about bush kids having adventures up snowy mountains and, you know, in beautiful meadows filled with golden daffodils. And then I'd have these English children on horseback chasing cattle mm. through the outback. You know, my stories were just completely blended and fanciful and I thought that was utterly normal. But what that did was lodged in me this great desire to actually see the lands of my childhood books. And, again, remember this is mm. 70s. 60s, 70s, 80s, and hardly anyone went to Europe and it was incredibly difficult to get there and expensive. And if you went, you went only for a minimum of 12 months and maybe longer. And, um, and, I, and you know, we didn't have social media, so I knew what certain things looked like from encyclopedias and mm. maps. But, uh, anyhow, I had, um, at the end of that year of Povey's, I, I ended up with a broken heart, which is well known as one of the number one reasons for travel. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's an antidote. <laughs> an antidote. So I packed my bag and um, I went to Europe for the uh, on the round-the-world ticket for 12 months and wow. on my own, and I think about it, I think, God, you know, my poor mother, it, I just went and mm. and travelled. But what? happened which was really really amazing is that just at the end I was about to come back so this is 1989 and I'm staying with a friend of mine an old law school chum who'd ended up in London and we were in a pub and there was this unbelievable noise at the bar at, on this television overlooking the bar and we looked up like oh my god it's the Berlin Wall it's falling wow so we got on a plane the next morning to Berlin. I was meant to be flying back to Australia. I changed my tickets, yeah. which wasn't easy back then because no. I couldn't do anything online. Yeah. got to Berlin and saw it with my own eyes and it was because history, wow. modern European history at school would be my favourite topic. I was there in the midst of this history that my teacher said would never change, never, ever um, be any different. The communists would rule forever and wow. my eyes, that whole world belief was, you know, being dismantled. So I got a piece of wall that an East German soldier hacked out for me and I brought it back and I, I was so broke by the time I got back to Australia. So I had to go back to law and this time in Alice with Povies in Alice. 
um, where I was for another four years until I saved up enough money to go back because when I saw that Berlin Wall, I thought mm. I, I'd always wanted to be a foreign correspondent and hadn't. I'd loved modern history. I thought this is my chance to get over the wall and see what's on the other side. Wow. Um, I just want to make one comment, and I know Leon's going to want to um, drill down that because of his love of history. But aside from talking about Lindy Chamberlain yesterday, I was also talking about Timmy the dog. And there'd be <laughs> very, very few other what that meant. But when you mentioned the Famous Five, I, I had to mention Timmy the dog on the podcast because I grew up watching that. And, of course, Timmy the dog was the star of the show. Did you watch it? Was it on television? It was. It, it would have been a remake, but, yes, we used to watch it in the – so that would have been the late 70s, early 80s. Um, wow. There was a – yeah, it was, it was the Famous Five. It used to come on every day at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock, whatever time it was. I, I loved it. Oh, my goodness, I bet yeah. you did. I never knew they took it out of books and made a television show. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, they certainly did. Wow. Timmy the dog, we love Timmy. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. So four years in, uh, in Alice Alice. Springs. That's, that's, a, Alice, yeah, yes. well, that, that's a long time. With Povies. With Povies, yeah. yeah. So Povies, so this was the early 90s and Alice was thriving in the early 90s. Um, we had a huge amount of um, commerce, lots of cross-trading between South Australia and the West Queensland and up to Darwin. And Alice was in the centre. So um, Povis was an exciting little firm and they did a bit of everything, but they had a, quite a commercial focus. So I did lots and lots of court work, but mostly civil court work and commercial work. Um, and I, but I, I, I'd, I was deeply unsettled the longer that I was there. I was so happy being back in Central Australia, but I could just see that wall. <laughs> mm. And I just had to save up. But also I didn't know how I was going to get back there because it's one thing to say, well, I'm going to go over it. But where would I go and how would I? It was only four years then you know, after the wall mm. had fallen. Anyhow, another miraculous coincidence occurred. That's probably a tautology, but anyhow, that's <laughs> a bit how it felt. Um, I was talking to a very dear friend of mine um, who was a, a lawyer in Darwin, Alison Lowry, telling her about my longing. She said, you've got to talk to Peter Barr. So Peter Barr, now Justice Barr of the Northern Territory Supreme Court, was just this young barrister in Darwin who had returned from... Czechoslovakia, where he'd done a sabbatical year as a teacher. And so I got to Darwin and met with Peter and Peter said, I can get you into this school for three months to teach English if you like because they're always looking for native speakers. That's what mm. they call them. I mm. said, well, I don't have any teaching experience. No, he said, don't worry. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, well, if Peter Barr can do it, I can do it, <laughs> which in retrospect was completely ridiculous because... Peter spoke three languages, hmm. French, um, I think Spanish, and by then Czech, he, uh, and Latin. He, he was the um, honorary consul for Belgium. He had lived in France for years. At the time, he, he had a French wife, I think. Yeah, he, was, he was so um, so well equipped for that kind of world, and he, he was so accredited, and I was 
you know, none of that. But I just thought this is, you know, how hard could it be? And I jumped. And again, it's one of those things if, if, if you jump, it has pros and cons. And this had serious cons to start with because Peter set it up for me and I jumped. But Czechoslovakia, it was the Czech Republic. It had just become the Czech Republic, had mm. not really moved on in four years, especially in the country. And so I went to this little country town called Sedlčany and I could speak no Czech and I, you know, schoolgirl French. And um, I just was completely lost there. Whereas Peter had arrived and he, he could, he picked up the language in weeks. He played mm. football with the male teachers. All the female teachers loved him because he was so cultured. He used to walk around with a Walkman in his ears listening to Pavarotti. So <laughs> everybody loved Peter Barr mm. and Wherever I went, people said, oh, how, how is Peter Barr? It's almost all the English they could say. They wanted <laughs> to know. So uh, initially it was very tough and I thought, well, what am I doing? I can't even teach. But um, what I could do was play guitar, not very well, um, but well enough to transcend that language gap. And mm. so I ended up teaching the, the students through music and then ended up going to Prague and falling like ended up my three months trip turned into two and a half years. <laughs> wow. And that is the subject of the first book that I wrote and published last year called Alice to Prague. And so what's right. so the book is about your journey to Prague and your time over there? Yeah, yeah. It, it's a little um, intro to growing up in Central Australia, which is, you know, gives the basis for my fascination for Europe, you know, the history. Um, talks about Peter Bart. Peter, dear Peter, um, he launched it for me in Darwin last year. It gave me a lot of stick, well-deserved, <laughs> <laughs> putting him in a book. Um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so Alan and Unwin published that last year as part of a, a two-book deal and I've just published the second one a month ago, which is called An Alice Girl and it's about growing up here in Central Australia in those early years. That sounds really impressive, Tanya. How did you get Alan and Unwin to to publish those books when you hadn't written before? That's a very good question, Leon. Fourteen years of perseverance. <laughs> <laughs> so when I came back from the Czech Republic, again, I was very broke, and I went to the West for and spent 20 years there working um, in mining mostly and in-house. Uh, and during that time, I knew that I wanted to write the story of the Czechs because nobody I knew knew their story. And even though I thought I'm, I'm not a journalist, and I'm not a historian, but I can tell the stories I learned through my eyes. So I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I sent it in so many times to so many publishers. I got rejected 30 times over 14 years. Mm. So it was not uh, an easy easy road to but I, I just kept finding different ways trying to reshape recraft learning how to be a writer for me was so difficult because as a child I wrote prolifically these you know ridiculous stories of um, Europe and Central Australia combined but I found that law messed with that creative side and having to learn to think analytically completely stifled my creative side so I had to unlearn a lot of the way I'd learned to write over the years, it took part of those 14 years was just learning, you know, not to put um, 
you know, forthwith and um, into <laughs> Alia and raise its interlocutor into my passages. That's right in English. To write in English. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that was the long and winding road, but it sort of looped back to the, your first question, which was three years ago when Dad was dying and I, I was on the brink of finally getting this breakthrough with the books. It just seemed like the right time to come home and I persuaded my very good husband who was in wine marketing to come up and be in tourism marketing so yeah we've been back in Alice for three years and it's been a full circle which actually is amazing and I feel so grateful to be back where it all started and mm. I'm hoping I can do some more writing. How has um, Alice progressed since uh, childhood to now? I mean yeah there's obvious things but what are the sort of main things that you that you recognise? Um, I think our, economically, Alice has definitely gone backwards. It's it doesn't have that thriving commercial trade it once had, which is very unfortunate because it's just been hit by so many external events. Um, tourism, which really underpins our economy now, struggles terribly, and of course during the time. Of, this time, this you know, for the centre and the top end, this is our tourist season. Mm. We don't have any tourists. So in that respect, it's difficult. Um, there's about twenty five to 26,000 people here, and I think it was probably not that different in um, the 90s. But growing up, of course, there are only about four or 5,000 people mm. in Alice, so very different to childhood. But it's still essentially, you know, this this little town that's grown around the magnificent McDonald Ranges and the country here dominates. So the town the town is the town, but it's the country, the landscape that's so compelling and that holds my heart. And uh, you mentioned your husband, but you didn't sort of mention, you know... <laughs> Where exactly in this timeline you uh, got together? <laughs> Where did I acquire him? <laughs> uh, well, again, in another one of those marvellous coincidences, um, in 2000 I'd gone back to Prague. I went backwards and forwards a lot even after I left living there. And I went via London to see a friend of mine who I'd worked with in Perth and he said, yeah, yeah come and stay with me. You're going to fall in love with my flatmate. And I said, oh, no, that no. It never works it, out. It never works out. And my friend Kevin had the worst, worst record ever for relationships. So I thought anything he recommends will be a disaster. And he said, no, this, this guy, he was born in Adelaide and you went to school there and he's, he's he's half English, half Australian and he grew up here and he's in wine marketing and he's your age and he's never been married either and he doesn't have kids either and um, I think you two really get along. And I was still like, well, Kevin, <laughs> anything you're putting forward, no, anyhow. So I got off the plane from Prague and I was I was deeply depressed at having left Prague because I every time I went back I just thought I want to live here again. And I got off the plane in London and my friend Kevin picked me up and we went back to Walden-on-Thames where I was staying and Steve was there and he walked in and he looked at me and I looked at him and that was it. <laughs> Damn, Kevin was right. 
Damn, Kevin was right. <laughs> we would have fucked it. <laughs> so that was 2000. And, um, yeah, we just celebrated last weekend the 20 years of me getting off the plane and walking into the house in Walton-on-Thames and meeting Steve. And then we um, got married here out at a cattle station two years later. So we um, – but the last 20 years pretty much we've been in the West. Um, so he's – He's bravely come back and he's, he's brave for somebody who's spent most of their life in England because it's so damn hot here <laughs> in mm, summer. Yeah. Um, Tanya, just on um, the Czech Republic and, and Czechoslovakia that you talked about earlier, I actually had a fellow work for me a few years ago who's from the Czech Republic and oh. I, I made the mistake of mentioning Czechoslovakia at one point and he said to me, um, he, he wasn't upset, but he said to me, oh, I'll just explain to you the situation. Um, like I'm sure Leon knows, but it, it is it is something that I'm sure many Australians wouldn't know. Can you just explain the whole Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia situation? Yeah. So dear old Czechoslovakia has had so many um, rulers and it was occupied by the Austro-Hungarian Empire and when they finally got rid of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in, um, I think it was 19... 19 or thereabouts, they created Czechoslovakia, this area that included Moravia and Bohemia and Slovakia and a couple of other areas. And so they had their country to themselves for the first time with their own real name. Then the Nazis came in and occupied them. Then the communists came in and occupied them. When they got rid of the communists, they had about three years of celebration. But then what transpired was that the Czech side and the Slovakian side were actually very different. The, the Czechs considered themselves more educated and sophisticated and more lean places like Berlin, whereas Slovakia um, were more peasant-based and considered themselves linked more to Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, so it, it was apparently quite amicable, but the Slovakians came to the Czechs and said, we want to divorce you. <laughs> and the Czechs said, well, look, that could be a big mistake economically for you. We're, we're prepared to continue in this role. And the, the Slovaks said um, no. And so they, they divorced effectively and became the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic. But what happened, in fact, was right that the Czechs economically um, mm. grew and um, the Slovak economy didn't so to this day there's quite a bit of rivalry but having said that the languages are virtually the same and um they've had a connection historically for so many decades that they they're still intertwined in lots yeah. of ways yeah still linked yeah so what what i mean look i mean i've been to europe a few times i have not been to prague uh, i think the closest i was was krakow last year um oh. Uh, what what makes Prague different to the other Eastern European capitals? Oh, it, to start with, it's so beautiful. It's the most beautiful Eastern European city and it rivals Paris in my view. It's, it's tiny um, chocolate box, straight out of your fairy tales, kind of old cobbled city with the castle on the hill, untouched since you know, the 1100s when it was first built. In fact, it was created, legend says that um, this princess stood overlooking the Vlutava, this beautiful river that runs through Prague and said, I see in my vision a city of stars. 
And so Prague was always destined to be incredibly beautiful. It became the main seat for the Holy Roman Empire in the 14th century. So they got all that money um, out of Rome, basically brought in and invested in the city. So architecturally, it's utterly beautiful, um, Baroque Renaissance architecture. Um, and fortunately, miraculously, because Hitler um, loved Prague and he was sort of this artistic nut, he didn't bomb Prague. Uh, and fortunately, it was too far away for the Allies to bomb, unlike Dresden and other places that the Allies mm. um, decimated. The communists let it go to rack and ruin, but they didn't actually destroy it. So what you have is this preserved medieval city in a tiny area. You can walk the whole place on foot with this river between it, and it's very magical. I, I don't know how to explain it, but... That the Czechs are very sort of mystical, magical people in lots of ways and they have lots of legends and myths around um, the beginning of their cities and um, Prague in particular. So it's, it's just a place that's interwoven with fables and stories and it's beautiful and it's preserved. And until, you know, at 1989 when communism fell across Eastern Europe, it was untouched by the West. So when I got there four years later... It was still largely untouched. Um, now there's a thousand million tourists there, and it's got hungry Jack, uh, not hungry Jacks, McDonald's, and other such hideous <laughs> travesties. But it's still, you know, essentially Czech, and the Czechs are very, um, they're very proud of their culture and their stories and their legends and their music and their architecture. So it's, it's like stepping in, it's like stepping into your very own fairy book story and. That, that's how it was for me and um, mm. just beautiful. It's just so beautiful. I've never been there either, but I've watched a few docos on uh, Prague and oh. I believe there is tunnel networks all over the city and, yeah. uh, you know, obviously through wartime and different things they were utilised, but now they've been, you know, restored and turned into all sorts of amazing things underneath the ground. Yes, lots of bars. They're very good drinkers. They have the mm. best beer in the world, <laughs> so they so they claim, and yeah. they're probably right. Uh, yeah, so lots of um, underground theatres where the where the resistance met and mm. so forth. It's known as the city of a thousand spires because mm. it's just these you know gorgeous, gorgeous cathedrals upon cathedrals, spires shining in the sunlight. Uh, and then every cathedral and salon has classical music floating out of it day in, day out. You can walk in at any time to a concert for about three Australian dollars and mm. they just there's culture everywhere, underground and hidden away in these beautiful books. Mozart and Beethoven um, wrote some of their most famous pieces there and Mozart wow. considered it his second home and, of course, it's the home of Kafka and you know, <laughs> all the Kafka-esque um, you know, stories, but but also approach to life. Also, uh, Milan Kundera, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, uh, mm. brilliant, brilliant writers, and Václav Havel, who was their amazing poet and playwright turned president um, when Gee. communism fell. So, I mean, what's not to love about a city where the poet is, the president sure. is a poet? And I guess it's not every day that a, a girl who grew up in... Um 
in uh, Alice Springs is talking about the likes of Beethoven and, you know, yeah. not just household names, but, you know, people who are <laughs> responsible for changing the world. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And, uh, you know, I look back at that string of coincidences, amazing yeah. moments in my life that took me from one place to another to another. So for all of that, I can go back and definitely thank my parents and the NT government for sending me away for secondary education because none of these life adventures would have occurred had I not done that. I'm just intrigued because, you know, you've obviously got a love affair, a a strong love affair with with Europe and with Prague in particular. Yeah. And yet you spent 20 years of your life in Western Australia. (laughs) Well, I would have lived those 20 years in Prague Believe me, um, but um, I and I lived there for two and a half years, and I tried to work, and everything I did, um, sort of, it, I could get so far, but I couldn't ever practice law, and I reached a point finally where I realised that I'd always be a second citizen living there because I, the, the language is so complicated. I worked really hard studying it, but I never got. You know, particularly good at it. I got very good at reading Czech legal documents because I, you know, ended up. I had the most amazing adventures there. I ended up working for the Minister of Justice and judges of the High Court, teaching them English, and then working at <laughs> a Czech law firm working on um, Czech English documents. And wow. those experiences were just incredible. But I could only get that far, and I realised that. I wanted to do more with my life and that if I stayed there, I couldn't. And it was also very hard to stay there and expensive. You had to line up for you know, 24 hours to get a visa every three months because they weren't mm. very keen on foreigners um, back then. So the, for two and a half years I, I did it because I loved it, but eventually on balance I thought mm. I I want to do I want to do more. Um, because if I stayed there, I just I realised that I wouldn't. But I go back as often as I can. And, in fact, I had all of September planned to go back and take my book, Alice to Prague. I had a launch lined up with Czech friends still there because I still have lots of friends there. And in the only English bookshop in Prague, I had this wonderful launch organised. I was going to go on Czech television and radio. And, of course, all of that's... Um, fallen over so um, I'll just you know it'll be a while before I go back but yeah I, I I've been back probably every couple of years since I first went there in 1994. And how did you come across Anka? Mm. By sheer chance as in Alice Springs um, somebody knows somebody knows somebody and there's too many degrees of uh, separation there. <laughs> <laughs> it's normally there somebody was, knows somebody and that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was, um, there was a, uh, a lady in Alice who, who knew of me. She loved Alice to Prague, absolutely loved it. She runs a book club. She invited me to the book club. I went to the book club and spoke on it. One of the book club attendees was Anka and she said, you should talk to Leon. <laughs> I love it. He's our best promoter, I think, Leon. He certainly is. He certainly is. It's a very, very interesting story. So what are you doing now then, Tanya? What are you? Well, um, sort of ex- well, two things really. I'm extending the 
or using the skill set I developed in the West, which was mostly as in-house counsel uh, and working on legal commercial matters. And there I worked for Wright Prospecting, which was the partner of Hancock Prospecting. Mm. And we spent most of our time suing Gina for stealing all the assets from <laughs> our company and we won everything back. We also sued Rio Tinto and got assets back from them as well. So it was, I ran this we were like a little law firm inside this um, mining company, Right Prospecting, and I was group general counsel and I built a team of lawyers and we had an external team of about 35. It was quite a phenomenal time. Um, but when I came back, I was pretty burnt out by that, but I'd learned a lot of skills. So um, I thought, what am I going to do while I'm here? And I was helping my father. One of the reasons I came back was to help him. So I'm doing some in-house commercial work in Alice, which I'm really enjoying, and writing and um, assisting my family or my mother in particular with the transition of all the businesses that Dad had to her. So it's a bit of a, I'm doing a little bit of everything at the moment and I don't know how long we'll be in Alice, but um, hopefully long enough so that I can write a third and fourth book. <laughs> wow. And what, what do you think you might write? Yeah. Well. Um, Given Alice to Prague was sort of from my age of about 28 onwards and the book I've just written was up to age 12, there's that gap between age 12, going away to boarding school and then law in the Territory and the Chamberlain Inquiry uh, and then heading to Europe. So um, my publisher has, has said I can put a pitch to them for that book um, because they're very interested in the whole Outback theme. So I'm crossing, crossing fingers. And then the fourth book <coughs> that I really want to write is um, stories I've learned from the Czechs uh, about the stories of, of the really courageous Czechs who fled Czechoslovakia and who escaped and came to Australia as refugees. And one of the amazing things is that I've now developed this wide connection network of Czech friends in Australia all mm. the refugees who came out after the 1968 spring or they escaped, um, came out after the wall fell. But some of them have got some amazing stories. So I I would like to have a go finally to write a, a, a book where I'm telling the stories of these people and probably interwoven with how I met them um, to give it that personal connection. And I, I haven't quite got the shape yet in my head, but... I've got some amazing Czech people who've given me their stories, which is an enormous honour. I really want to honour those stories. So that's that's currently my thinking. And <coughs> excuse me, none of this I could do if I was um, working full time, you know, back in a legal practice or, or heaven forbid, mm. in house counsel you know, from mining company suing Gina and Rio Tinto. So I thought. <laughs> If I was going to do this writing, this is the time because I've always thought law will always be there. I can always go back to it. Um, but these are the, these are um, two two lots of stories very close to my heart. So I'm crossing fingers. The publisher says yes when I do my pitch for a second two book deal. <laughs> mm. Well, uh, on the subject of people escaping um, Eastern <laughs> European countries, um, we had. Uh, Dr. Bo Remini on the podcast uh, recently, and uh, you should have a listen to that one, Tanya, because uh, she, she, well, she was young, but uh, her, 
her mother uh, took her and her sister and spirited them away out of Hungary uh, a couple of years before the wall came down. Wow. Uh, in fact, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they went and... Uh, uh, they went and spent some time in a refugee camp in Austria, which I didn't even know Austria had refugee camps. Mm, yeah, it had a huge number of refugee camps. Right. Especially and, uh, for people coming out of Hungary. Yeah. Three yeah. Eastern European countries. Yeah, but I think uh, because you're an author and because you like history and because obviously you've got a very strong connection to Eastern Europe, I think you'd find her story utterly fascinating. Oh, thank you, Leon. I will. I'd, I'd love to. That'll be my treat. <laughs> That'll be my treat tomorrow when I finish drafting a document. That'll be my treat. <laughs> That's your reward for writing the document. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Writing documents remains my least favourite thing. The best part I'll of... go back into that analytical side and leave the creative side behind it. That learning to shift between different sides of your brain is not for the faint-hearted, <laughs> for me anyway. No, it, it's not at all. I, I truly appreciate it. And Leon and I are probably a good example of that in, in that we, we, we have our sort of, you know, things that we do beyond the podcast, obviously, that involve different sides of the brain. And yeah. it, is, it is difficult to switch from one to the other. Mm, um, I'm glad. Yes, you understand. You're IT, aren't you, Peter? Is that right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, digital marketing and and um, yeah, um, anything sort of in that space. My my mother thinks that um, I, I'm I'm a 24-hour tech <laughs> help, so um, I get phone calls about all sorts of things. Like my computer monitor's not working. Okay, well, what what do you want me to do about it? And then I get a call an hour later. No, it's okay. I'll fix it. I kicked the cable out by mistake. <laughs> yeah, but um, just on that story with uh, Dr. Bo, the thing I, I sort of took most out of that is that um, if she she still has, in my opinion, a quite a strong accent from, from mm. growing up in Hungary and yet she's a, well, She's as proud an Australian as all of us, and I love yeah. that. And and she she just loves this country for what it has done for her and what it has afforded to her. And actually, yeah. some of the things that you talked about, I thought of her straight away because wow. her teachers at her school at, in Townsville also said, "No, no, you don't want to do that. Here's what you want to do, and here's why." And wow. it set her on a completely different path, but she doesn't regret it because, you know, she had the brain. So I think it was she wanted to do science, but she was clearly going to be a doctor because she was the ducks of the school from the age of about 13 or something. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I'll be fascinated to listen to her story because, you know, those people who went through those times, none of us who have grown up in freedom can truly comprehend Helena Kotasek, who is this wonderful lady, about 87, who I just love. I met her in Adelaide and she's one of the um, people whose stories I've, I've written down. But she said in her accent, she goes, Tanichko, that's, you know, yeah. her affectionate way of saying Tanya, Tanichko, I lived in fear all my life. Everywhere I went, I lived in fear until mm. I came to this country. Mm. And she didn't come here until she was nearly 50. 
Wow. Lived in fear from a child. Um, mm. So she, yeah, she, talk about proud Australian. Mm. Yeah. Well, I won't ruin the story for you, but when you were talking about the Berlin Wall, um, she also talked about it. Oh. And, and one of the things that she said was that, uh, you know, it came a point when her mother said, right, we're leaving, and her parents were separated. So she said goodbye to her father without being able to tell him she was leaving. Mm. And in her mind, she was never going to talk to him again because yeah. communism was never going to change. It was never going anywhere. No. Now, of course, the world changed after that, but she was never to know that. And yeah. you can't comprehend what that would be like for a 13-year-old no. to, to have to go through that experience. But the stories I hear over and over again, and I think, we are so fortunate in this country. We do not realise how fortunate we are that we've never had to go mm. through that kind of occupation and live in that kind of fear and have to say goodbye. And, well, Helena, she left her mother and she she couldn't tell her mother she was leaving mm. and she knew she'd never see her mother again. Mm. And she didn't. Yeah. You know, yep. that's the sacrifice that, they they made for freedom and for their children. Just extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. And and you're right. I mean, it's often referred to as the lucky country, but uh, I know the first time I travelled overseas was was mainly in Asia, and I saw things that I can't unsee. And mm. um, yeah, at, at the end of the day, uh, you, you know, you'll never have nothing in Australia, regardless of who you are. And mm. That's, you know, that's one of the great things about it is that there's, there's always something to prop you up. That's right. I, I think that is the number one reason to travel and the number one benefit from travel. Correct. It widens your perspective. It gives you an appreciation of how lucky we are here, you know, and insight into other people. The thing I learned was going across the wall into these countries that I really just knew through history books as being full of evil people because James Bond, you know, <laughs> he, he went there and they were all evil. Yeah. So that was, you know, we grew up with our thinking shaped mm. by this. When I met these people in the Czech Republic, they were just ordinary people exactly the same as me and everyone else I knew with the same desires for love and family and safety mm. and happiness and like we're all people and politics and regimes attempt to sway mm. thinking and to turn people against people because it serves their political ends. And I think for me that was that has always been the number one benefit of travelling. It just mm. shocks you out of that isolated, narrow, fearful mindset to realise you know, we're all the same all around the world. So they weren't all evil masterminds. No. <laughs> there was not one I found that fitted a James Bond movie. Amazing. Well, Tanya um, or Tanichko. Thank you, Norm. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and for you to share your story with us. Um, I would highly recommend that uh, people get to know you more by reading your books and certainly I'll be looking out for them myself. Um, uh, and I, I want to wish you all the best with uh, your time in Alice Springs and we hope you stay here for many more years. 
Thank you, Leon. Thank you very much to you and, and Peter. As I said, I've, I've got the dreaded lurgy, so you've been very gracious as I've coughed and spluttered throughout. Um, but do yourself a favour, as Molly Meldrum would say, <laughs> and pop down to the bookshop Darwin, um, which has both books. And um, I think readings in Melbourne, Peter, have, have also got both books. Yep. So you, you know where to find them. Sure. I love it. And probably Amazon too, I'd imagine. Yeah, Amazon, Kindle, the, the whole lot. That's mm. the great thing about Alan and Unwin. Their distribution is, you know, advanced yep. and vast. Well, you're the second author we spoke to from Alice Springs in the, in the yeah, most recent past. That's right. Um, Dave Ives. Dave Ives. I don't know if you know Dave Ives. He is the happiest American I've ever come across. Uh, <laughs> and he's... Uh, I hasten to add, probably the number one fan of Alice Springs, believe it or not. Oh, mm. that's fantastic. No, I don't know him. Well, I'll keep my ears and eyes peeled for him. Oh. We've, we've dubbed him the unofficial books. man. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's written six books, uh, so he's about four ahead of you. Good heavens. And he also sings about Alice Springs. Mm. <laughs> Why have I never heard of this man? I, I'm I don't know. Down. Well, Just, he's, um, he's, he's on the podcast. We released that, uh, well, well, as we're recording, we released that today. So. <laughs> oh, Just, fabulous. Just don't ask him about his time uh, in the Air Force because it's classified and he doesn't know what he did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, oh, Tanya. Excuse me, excuse me. Yes, it's probably a very good time to sign off now before I burst into a complete paroxysm of coughing. But thank you both. It's just been a joy to sit here and tell you my story and to share some of those amazing adventures I had, particularly with like-minded people. I've, I've loved it. So thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Tanya Heaslip on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.